0: Those stairs are nothing, Brandon. That's like three stairs. Come on, I'm just kidding. I'm just playing. Actually, uh, Whitney's family has the uh, the triplets this weekend, so you know, uh, Whitney and I have been having some fun free time, and we decided to go to one of those trampoline parks. I mean, you're probably thinking if you have triplet two-year-olds, you probably don't go to a trampoline park when they're not home, but I don't know. That's just one of the things that was on our list, so, so I'm, I'm feeling that this morning, too, actually. That was that was a, quite a workout, you know. I don't know how people do the two-hour sessions. Like, we were there for an hour, and we almost died, but it was fun. Um, if you don't know me, I'm Ben Halbrooks. I am not Pastor Chris. As Brandon's already shared, he is away having some much-needed recovery, and family time, and he'll be back next week. Um, And uh, this morning, I am just honored to be bringing uh, the word and hope to be a good steward of our time. And if you've been with us, you know that we're going through a series on 2 Corinthians, and this morning, we're continuing in that, and I think we have one final week in that next week. Um, So let's go first to 2 Corinthians um, chapter 12. And we're going to read from verse 19 through chapter 13, verse 4 this morning. So starting with chapter 12, verse 19. Paul writes to the Corinthian church. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Um, I pray that during this time you would speak through me, that I would be diminished and you would be magnified, um, and that your truth would be impressed upon our hearts, that your spirit would be here this morning, that it would convict us, and that we would hear what you need us to hear, and we would turn back towards you, um, and we would grasp the promises that you give us. Your rich mercy and love for us, and the way that you seek to transform each one of our lives this morning, I lift this time up in your Son Jesus' name. Amen. Um, all right, so this passage—if uh, you're a little bit like me—you um, read this passage and you think that's that sounds a little harsh, Paul. Um, so. I think, I think it's meant to be harsh, actually. So if you're hoping that I'm coming up here this morning, I'm going to say, you know, let me tell you, let me make you very comfortable in this passage, and I'm going to tell you that it's actually not meant to be harsh. You will be disappointed, because I think it is. Um, I think it is. And Brandon and I were actually joking about how it seems like Chris always, he's always seems to be gone right around the time that we're talking about church discipline and some of these really tough Subjects like why? Why it it seems like he passes the baton just at the right time. Um, So anyway, this morning though, I want to be faithful to the passage, and I do think there's a lot in this passage that that makes us uncomfortable and should should for the right reasons. Um, And so you'll see in your worship guide there's a space for notes. You'll see the title is Conviction Because of Christ. So with a title like that, um, prepare buckle up um, because this is going to make us a little uncomfortable. And again. I think it should. So um, let me back up and do a little bit of context here, the who and the what of what we're looking at here. As, as I said, we've been going through the second, uh, the second letter here to the Corinthians. Paul founded this church. Um, he founded this church and has poured so much of his energy into shepherding this church. And it's been kind of a rocky relationship from, from the beginning. Um, and uh, that's, that's something that's not really hidden in these passages as we've been going through um, weeks of this, you know, bringing up the, the different things that he's concerned about as it comes to this church and its members. Um, he's become aware of some of its wayward leanings. Um, false teachers have come in and tried to sway some of its believers um, towards different false gospels. Um, and Paul has written to them multiple times and visited them multiple times in order to anchor them in the true gospel over and against these false gospels and teachers. And so this is the context in which this is written um, that we read this morning. And uh, if you don't have to go there, but in chapter 2, verse 4, he talks about writing to them in anguish and tears. So this is his heart poured out for this church. Um, Now, in between the the 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, many of the Corinthians actually turned and repented from sins that he brought up. But some of them didn't. And it's this latter group, actually, that he writes to in this section that we're reading today. Those that remain unrepentant in gross sexual sin, blatantly so. So he's calling them out, and he's saying, when I come again if you remain in this state, then there will be disciplinary measures. Okay, so this, this is the group that he's calling out. Now, just, just you know, to make sure that we're reading this in the right spirit and we're getting the right tone from Paul, this is a deep, heartfelt concern of Paul's. Um, he's not writing this in a condescending way. He's not writing this in an arrogant way. In fact, you know, if you heard Garrett, last week, he spoke about Paul talking about this thorn in his flesh. We don't know specifically what the thorn is, but it's a struggle that Paul himself has. It's greatly humbling to Paul. Um, And so he identifies with this fleshly spiritual struggle that the church is going through as well. Um, This isn't a self-serving power trip from Paul where he's just ready to just lay down the law, so to speak. No, it's, it, Paul speaks about this being humbling to him, this visit being humbling to him as well, since he founded this church and he seeks to shepherd them. This is, this, he really feels anguish for this church and wanting them to be rooted in the truth and not swayed by the world, which was a real struggle for the Corinthian church. Um, but Paul takes his apostolic, apostolic um, authority very seriously, and he makes it pretty clear from the get-go um, that he is. He says we're it's inside of God that we've been speaking to you. He makes it very clear from the get-go that his commitment is to the person of Jesus Christ and his truth, not the approval of men. And so because of that, he's willing to say some hard but true things that this church needs to hear. Um, so this morning, we're going to kind of unpack what that means for us. Um, this uh, today. So, like I said, he warns the unrepentant of disciplinary measures. We don't know specifically what those are. We don't know if this means they're actually going to get cast out of the church. We don't know if it means that they're going to um, have to go through some specific process, but we do know a little bit um, about what that looks like. Now, I want to go back to something that Chris actually said near the very beginning of this series, and he said that, he said that our culture has a very high view of salvation and a relatively low view of the church. Um, and I, I think that's gonna be important this morning as we go through these verses. And what he meant by that is that we live, obviously, in a culture that's very individualistic. So we, we tend, the idea of salvation is one that a, appeals to most, um, and we hold it in high regard. But when it comes to an institution like the church having some part in that, or even exercising some authority, that's when we start getting really uncomfortable. Um, and so I think we have to keep that in mind this morning. Like I said, as we go through this passage, now there is a biblical basis for church discipline exercised properly, biblically, appropriately, and with humility and accountability. Now we see, then, verse nineteen. Paul speaks of. Um, well, actually, before verse nineteen, Paul speaks of having witnesses, evidence of two or three. Witnesses. He speaks about accountability. He speaks about this going, being systematic and done in a way that's appropriate, that's not about grinding an axe, It's not something done you know, behind closed doors, but something that's done um, in the sight of God and done in an appropriate manner. And I'm not going to go into the details necessarily of church discipline, but just to say that there, there is an appropriate place for this. Now, can it be abused? Obviously, yes. Um, it has and can, just like any system. Um, but there is a biblical ground, there are biblical grounds for it done in the right way. And this is clearly the way that Paul is seeking to apply it. Now, the goal of discipline always is restoration. Um, verse 19, the verse I nearly pointed to a second ago, says this um, He speaks of, We've been speaking in Christ all for your upbuilding, beloved. Okay, you hear his concern for them. He says, for your upbuilding. That is the ultimate goal of discipline. It's, it's not to say we're better than you, it's not to say you don't deserve grace, and we do. It's about restoring someone to the flock. And often that can be a hard process, and we've seen that that it seems to be headed in that direction for this particular group that has decided to blatantly stay unrepentant with these gross sexual sins that he points out and has pointed out before. One thing that I think we, we also, like in, we hear in, modern, in our modern day times, we, this idea when Paul gives his warnings, again, we say, wow, this is harsh. We need to keep in mind that a warning, as weird as it sounds, a warning is actually a measure of mercy. A warning is a measure of mercy. Okay, when, when God warns his people, if these things don't take place, then this will happen. Paul warns this church, if you don't turn, these things will happen. What he's, he's giving them an opportunity to consider the cost. He's giving them an opportunity to reconsider. He's bringing it up. And he, this is not, as he makes clear, not the first time he's brought this up. A warning is a measure of mercy. And again, I realize that can be tough to stomach in today's world. And we think, wow, why wouldn't he just say, you guys are fine? We'll get to that. Um, All right, so this morning, why, though? The the two big questions that I want to look at, now that we've kind of gotten some of the context out of the way, why are these unrepentant Corinthians still a part of the church? This is like one of the two big questions that I have when I look at this passage. Why are these Corinthians still a part of the church? If they're unrepentant, and they're seeking to live this way. And two, kind of to turn the, turn the lens back on ourselves, why are we so uncomfortable with this passage? And I actually think that the answers to these questions are very closely related. Um, C.S. Lewis said this. This is a line that I've been kind of mulling around in my head for a while. His, he said, if you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. <laughs> so, you know, thanks for that encouragement, C.S. Lewis. That, that may, might be a nice little backdrop for today's message. Uh, these Corinthians, to start with this particular group of holdout Corinthians, they have believed in something that Chris has called um, in previous weeks the license gospel. Um, Now, again, remember, the Corinthians have have heard many false gospels from many false teachers. um, And they have an issue going to a worldly way of life versus a holy way of life. And Paul is saying you need to be different. So one of these gospels is the licensed gospel. In other words, what theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer might have called cheap grace. The idea that, well, you know, if Jesus has done these things... I can just continue living my own selfish life, right? I mean, that's pretty much means I have absolute freedom to live as I please, okay? Um, and this, this is clearly the version of this false gospel that these particular Corinthians have bought into because they want to continue living under gross sexual sin that they commit blatantly in the church that they are not repentant of, okay? So and they, they apparently see no huge problem with this, and that's, that's, it's, it's why they've bought into the license gospel. Um, if we flip actually back to 1 Corinthians chapter six, you don't have to do that, but I'll read it for you. Um, this is something again, that Paul has spoken about multiple times with the Corinthians. So if we go back to that letter, um, 1 Corinthians chapter six, verse um, I'm going to read verse 11. And then skip down to 19. Um, He says this, And such were some of you. And what he means is, you know, you were living in sin. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Skipping down to verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. These particular Corinthians, they hadn't internalized that, that they were not their own, that they had been bought by Christ. They were still living as if they were their own. And they were using Christ as just a license to do that. That's the license gospel. Guess what? We do this too. We do this too. Sometimes um, we are fooled by the licensed gospel. Here's one way I think, certainly today, that we can fall into this trap. We confuse love with affirmation. Um, here's a biblical story that I think really gets to the heart of this. Um, Mark 10. If we jump here to Mark 10, I'm going to go down to verse 17. You've all heard this story probably usually called the rich young ruler, or the rich young man. Um, As Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he, the young man, said to him, Teacher, All these I have kept for my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he, the young man, went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So each of us has our own set of temptations that we deal with clearly for this young man, uh, he was so attached to his material possessions that he could not part with them. Um, And he comes to the Lord, telling the Lord, he's kept all the commandments. Well, clearly, the, the principal commandment of not having any other gods before God, he failed to keep. And Jesus sees straight to his heart and sees that his God is his money and his possessions. And so when he calls him to break from that, he can't do it. Um, But the particular verse here that I think is easy to skip over that I want to point out is this. Verse 21, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. It's an interesting detail to include that he says he loved him. Remember I said we confuse love with affirmation these days. Maybe we would have said, Hey, Jesus... Like, if you love the guy, just just tell him it's fine. It's fine. You don't need to change anything. That's how we confuse love with affirmation. We think that we need to be affirmed in all who we are. And that's love. But that's not the love that Jesus shows this young man, it's different. Um, Kind of a funny illustration that I've been told before. I don't know where from, so I can't give proper credit, unfortunately, but it goes kind of like this. Uh, um, A man and his wife were having some marital difficulties and he went to his counselor and his counselor told him, look, okay, well, this is what you need to do by, you know, this particular day, I want you to come up with a list of 10 things um, that you think your wife needs to work on, Um, things that need improvement, and you need to take these things to your wife and you need to discuss them. You all need to converse about them. You need an open line of communication, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, as the illustration goes, again, I don't know if this is actually true or not. As the illustration goes, you know the man, okay, he's got a few days, he thinks hard, he goes back and he just, okay, well, you know, the day's coming up, comes time and he comes to his wife and he says, You know, I just thought hard and long and I just couldn't think of anything. That you needed to change. So instead of 10 things, I've got you 10 roses. Here are your 10 roses. One for each of those things that I couldn't think of. So you hear that story and you think, oh, wow, that sounds so romantic. <laughs> or maybe you realize that the story sounds a little silly. Um, because, you know, right now, I guarantee you, Whitney could think of 50-plus things that I need to work on and change. She probably has a list in her purse. No, I'm just kidding. No, she's nicer than that. I could think of 50-plus things that I need to change. And real love, of course, does not gloss over the fact that we are not perfect saints. Um, And I think we've bought into this kind of message a little bit too much that we want to hear Billy Joel in the background, you know, I love you just the way you are, like that... This is the reason why I'm not on the worship team, and Whitney is. You know, there's a little church hack for you. Sit towards the front, and few people can hear you sing. That way you can just sing as loud as you want. Sorry, Ingelberts, I think y'all are the one family that is consistently in front of me when I'm singing. But anyway, uh, we've, we've heard this. And the reason that it's appealing, actually, is I think there's a grain of truth in it. Just like any compelling lie, it takes a truth and it just slightly distorts it. Jesus does love us just the way we are. You know, just as I am, I come to him. We can't clean ourselves up before we come to Jesus. That's that's not what Paul is saying in this message. It's not what the Gospels are saying. But Jesus doesn't want us to stay the way we are. He wants us to be transformed. That's what Paul wants to see in his church. He wants to see transformed followers of Christ he doesn't want to see people being sidelined by this false gospel that teaches a license to live selfishly at the end of the day that we just you know use a little spiritual language but at the end of the day we're still living for ourselves repentance is at the heart of this message in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, um, so this is just a few chapters earlier from our passage today, Paul says, he uses this phrase. Let me read it real fast once I find it. So he says, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. It's kind of an interesting phrase there. Godly grief. Godly grief produces repentance. This is what he wants to see at work in this church. Produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. That's the life of freedom that followers of Christ should be living in. And so Paul realizes, if I need to propel some godly grief in these people... It will be well worth it, rather than just affirming the way they're living, which is really ultimately false. Like I said, repentance is at the heart of this message. According to Mark and his gospel, Jesus began his earthly ministry with these words, repent and believe in the gospel. I think in our own time, we don't often hear of the Jesus who says repent. Repent. Because maybe we don't want to. We love the Jesus that's just love. But the idea that Jesus calls us to repent, man, that's, that's, I don't know, that sounds a little bit tougher to swallow. That maybe makes us squirm a little bit. The heart of the word repent means turn. Jesus is calling us to turn, to change direction. And maybe that's the word that really... Makes us uncomfortable, the idea of change. But every great story, if you think about it, every great story has a central character who undergoes some kind of change. And yes, maybe it's difficult, maybe it's hard, but that's what the Lord wants to do with our hearts. He wants to transform us. And repentance is not just about a feeling. It's about the fruit of the Spirit at work in our lives. So it should influence our actions that we want to respond to the mercy of the Lord by living in a way that reflects him. That's what Paul's not seeing in these particular believers. What he's seeing is like basically prisoners who are freed but they're still living in the cell. That's not what he wants to see in his church. Still captive to their old desires. Still captive to their selfish, worldly way of life. And he says, no, you've been made free by Christ. Leave the cell. Be transformed. Let the Spirit surrender to the Spirit and let the Spirit live in you. Uh at the, this conference that we went to a few months ago, an apologetics conference called Rethink, where we took some of the, the youth group, uh, there was a guy named Jay Warner Wallace who told an interesting story um, about his and his father's uh, relationship. And his father is not a believer, um, but he says, you know, the a very decent man, hardworking policeman, just like he is. Um, and he said he's had plenty of conversations with his father about his faith. And he said, you know, that... Kind of the key conversation goes something like this. He says, his dad says, you know, well, look, if there is a God, the God of the Bible, he's a good God. And, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a decent, good guy. If I'm a good guy and God's a good God, then surely, you know, at the end of, the end of things, he's going he's to let me in, right? It's going to be okay. And he, he wanted his son to kind of affirm this. It's kind of a fallback. But he said, you know what, Dad, here's the problem. God isn't a good God. He's a holy God. He's a holy God. Nothing less than the perfect blood of the spotless lamb is going to make you right with the holy God not your own measure of goodness. Um, Being obviously in youth ministry, I've read loads of these studies, and most of them show, most American religious studies show that young people think that Jesus' role in their lives is to make them better people and help them live better lives. In other words, kind of like a useful accessory, just making things just slightly better. Um, you know, sometimes people give a lofty term to this called a moralistic therapeutic deism, if you've ever heard that crazy uh, just jargon of terms. Um, but if you think that, if you really believe that, what happens is as soon as you feel like Jesus is no longer useful, you abandon the church. And this is what we see a lot and a lot, happen all the time in young people across our nation. It's this consumerist mentality. What is, what is Jesus, what is the church going to bring to me? And as soon as that seems to dry up, it's time to move on. This is another version of the licensed gospel. That Jesus is a useful accessory. And yeah, maybe this is true of young people, but I don't know if that necessarily leaves adults off the hook either. Maybe this is a... Societal problem. In youth group, we call this sprinkling on some Jesus. (laughs) This idea that, you know, you live life essentially for yourself, but just sprinkle in some Jesus makes you feel better. Because, you know, you use all the terminology that it's all okay. Um, This is kind of, this is a spiritual version of a gimmicky diet, where it's kind of like we all know at the end of the day we need to We need to live better, we need to exercise, we need to eat better. But I could just like shovel a bunch of donuts and then just take some like fat blaster pills, right? Because that way I don't have to change anything. I can keep all my old habits and just use this sort of like gimmicky eraser. Or you know, like to to make this personal, like a a few years ago I realized I don't have a really good workout discipline. I need to get on that. Um, and I, th- it was right around the time that this thing called the seven-minute workout was a big deal. And I was like, hmm, this is appealing to me. The whole idea behind the seven-minute workout, and by the way, this isn't like a shot at the seven-minute workout. If there's someone out there that's like, I rigorously follow the seven-minute workout. It's just an analogy, people, as I tell my youth group all the time. Don't get stuck on the analogy. <laughs> The seven minute workout, the whole idea behind it is that it's not necessarily the quantity or the time or even the quality necessarily of your workout. It's all about the intensity. And so if you just do this for seven minutes and basically it's equivalent to you doing you know, a couple hours worth of what you think of as a standard workout. So this appealed to me because I thought, hey, you know, this is only seven minutes out of my day. That'd be nice. You know, At the end of the day, I think I was just looking for the shortcut. Maybe we're looking for these spiritual shortcuts sometimes. I will say, after going to that trampoline park, I'm starting to reconsider whether or not the seven-minute workout was maybe onto something. Because whew, trampoline park. Like I told you. That's rough. Um, that's not surrender. And Paul is calling his church here to surrender to Christ. Don't just use all the spiritual language, but in your life, surrender to him. And again, just so I am very clear, there is nothing that we can do to earn the Lord's favor. In saving us, faith alone, there is nothing that you can do. Now, we speak a lot about salvation. This is more about sanctification in the life of a Christian becoming molded to be more like our savior. Um, I don't know how, if I have time to read a particular story, but I'll give you a brief summary of a story that um, is worth reading. <laughs> uh, a book that C.S. Lewis wrote, that's, uh, it's fiction. It's kind of a, a vision, if you will, of basically a, a people on a field trip to the foothills of heaven, as he calls it. It's called The Great Divorce. The book has nothing to do with a marital divorce. It's about sort of the divide between heaven and hell. Um, It's a group of people that go on this field trip, and they interact with angels, and uh, each of them has maybe a specific vice or something that's holding them back from being able to experience life with the Savior in heaven. And there's this one man that has like a little... It's called a red lizard, like a, and a salamander on his, on his shoulder. The salamander represents lust. It's that guy's particular sin that he deals with. And this angel is asking him permission to destroy the lizard because he can see the lizard is just tormenting the guy. He's always on his shoulder chattering away. Um, and the guy kind of sort of wants to get rid of it, but maybe not because it's literally like a pet sin. like It's, it's like a little pet. And he's saying, no, 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 you're going to hurt me, and maybe I'll die too. And the angel's like, no, 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 you're, you will not die. But it may be painful. I didn't say it wouldn't be painful, but I, I, you need to give me permission to destroy him. If you're going to be here, if you're going to reside in heaven, this has to happen. And Eventually, the guy finally lets it happen. Um, and the angel destroys the lizard, even though the lizard tries to keep telling him, look, I'll be quieter, I'll be better, I'll give you good dreams, I'll do all this stuff. And it's an interesting kind of depiction of how we try to self-justify our own sin. How we try to argue our way into, this doesn't need to change, Lord. And when the angel destroys the lizard, it transforms into this glorious stallion. And the man becomes way more than he used to be. And he jumps on the back of the stallion and they ride into the foothills of heaven toward their Savior. And it's this great scene of how the Lord transforms us into something glorious. So, this morning, I want us to realize that Jesus is spiritually ambitious for our souls, not, not worldly ambitious spiritually ambitious for our souls. He wants to see us transformed into glory. He wants to see us transformed into who we were made to be. So I think the question for us this morning is, what what are those idols keeping us from following him? What are the things that maybe we have thrown into the licensed gospel category sometimes? And again, the message isn't necessarily... It isn't about us just trying hard to make ourselves perfect. That's not at all what this is about. It's about who, who or what do we turn to when we battle those fleshly things? Do we turn inward to ourselves? To seek by our own efforts to make things right? Or to seek to justify why those things are okay? Or do we turn to the Lord of mercy? Do we turn to him, the founder and perfecter of our faith? And if we lay those things at his feet and say, I surrender to you, Christ, because I want to see you transform me, that's, that's earnestly what Paul wants to see in his church. The cool thing is he did see that with many of the Corinthian followers. Not this particular group. So he's giving them another chance to do so. So if, if, nothing, if you hear nothing else this morning, I want you to hear that um, Jesus wants us to live as jars of clay. He wants us to live, to to use another phrase of Paul's, in a way that we're seeking to be molded into something far greater and more glorious by the hands of the heavenly potter, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.